what was then MySpace. And I got a MySpace page. And MySpace was the first social media avenue by where you could post information about yourself and other people could come and communicate to you. It was pre-Facebook. And I, I used it, I have to admit, mostly just to spy on the students that were in my ministry. I, uh, I spent a lot of time lurking on their sites because I had several hundred students and it was really the only way I could kind of find out what's going on in their lives, keep up with what was going on in their lives. And, and so I followed along. And then a few years later, Facebook came along and that changed everything. And uh, Facebook, if you remember, when it started out, you had to be in college to have a Facebook page and you had to be above 18. And then they expanded it and they expanded it and they took the prohibitions away where anybody could be on Facebook and it just exploded to the point now that probably your parents and your grandparents are on Facebook. I don't know if there's anything more embarrassing than to, to find your parents commenting on your page or commenting on your face page. And I'm not talking about people like me. I'm talking about people like my parents. My dad has a Facebook page and there's nothing like a 78-year-old commenting on my stuff. And usually it's in all caps, right? Uh, but Facebook kind of changed the, the idea of social media. And it's so hard to be able to keep up. There are so many apps and social media sites now that it's hard really to keep up with what's popular and what's hot and what's irrelevant. And you can usually tell by the ones that your kids are leaving that that's no longer important anymore. But for me, I've tried to discipline myself. I know there are a lot of people that say that online social media is evil or somehow that it's bad. But it's an inanimate object. It has no inherent evil in it. It's kind of like money. It's not evil in and of itself. It's what you do with it and what it causes you to do that can make it either good or evil. And so I've disciplined myself to where I uh, am only on two sites. I'm only on Facebook and I only post on Instagram. And I do those to, to the same way I started in social media, to keep up with people. It is a wonderful tool for me to be able to be involved, to continue to be engaged in people's lives. I've served in ministry now for 32 years and I've served in five churches in four different states. And Facebook is a great tool for me to stay engaged in people who are my students and my church members and see what God is doing in their lives. And to be honest with you, I use it as a prayer tool. I, when I'm on it and I'm reading and, and God opens my eyes to something that's going on in your life or in somebody else's life, or maybe just to see your name on there, it reminds me I need to pray for that person. And so I pray for them. And it has continued to be a wonderful tool for me. But I have to tell you, as someone who is a very private person, one of the things that drives me crazy, matter of fact, it makes me want to get off of some social media, is when someone airs their dirty laundry online. It's when someone puts up too much information, when they take their private drama and put it online for everybody else to see. And the thing is, is that people, when they do that, don't realize what they are saying to the people that are reading their page. They don't understand that people look at what you put online in any format and they gauge what you put online and compare it to who you are in real life. And let me just say this, for those of you that are on social media, Christians, probably the greatest influence, the greatest outreach, and the greatest way that you will communicate to more people in your life is through an online post. And every time you post something online, whether you want them to or not, people are going to look at what you post and compare it to how you live your life. 
And it amazes me that people post some things. And, and, and you know, I, I, I don't look at Facebook to judge what's going on. Many times if it's just... Uh, Dirty laundry, I just skip over it. But it amazes me that you'll have somebody that'll blast somebody or blast the situation or post some inappropriate things. And then in the next post, it's a scripture. Or in the next post, it's something that, that is uh, trying to be uplifting. I, I want to just type on there, you're being inconsistent and people recognize it. And let me just say, to be fair, it goes the other way. If all you post online is scripture and Christ, Christian memes and yet your day-to-day life doesn't match up with that, people notice it. And one of the reasons I'm sharing all of that, one of the reasons that I bring that up is because in our study in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been encouraging the church there to recognize, to remember that people watch you, and that your integrity, and that your testimony, and that your witness is very important, and it's easily destroyed through your behavior and your words. He's been trying to tell them that the church is a family, and that you are called to keep things within the family. Don't take them outside the family. And he believed that we learned last week that the integrity of the church, the witness of the church, the testimony of the church is so important that if there is somebody that's in the family that is living in public unrepented sin, that the church is supposed to ask them to leave. Not for the sake of of revenge, not for the sake of making a scene, but for the sake of the testimony and the integrity of the body, but also for the sake of that person. So they might be redeemed, so they might somehow be, be reconciled with Christ through that action. Now that action that we talked about last week, that's a pretty unique uh, circumstance, but it's still relevant today. It's still relevant to help us understand how God views sin in the church and how God views our response and our reaction to sin in the church. But this morning, he is going to talk about something that's even more broad, that affects even more of us. And it relates to the same thing of being a part of a body, being a part of a family, and how we treat each other. And that is, this morning, he's going to talk about Christians that take other Christians to court. Christians that sue other Christians. Now, he's not talking about criminal cases. He's not talking about someone getting, uh, being held responsible for their actions and their crimes. What he is talking about is civil court and suing one another. And unfortunately, this is becoming a more and more relevant topic for the body of Christ. You'd probably be not surprised to know that the United States of America is the most litigious country in the world. There are more civil lawsuits in the United States of America than anywhere else. goes to reason that there's more lawsuits because we have more lawyers than anywhere else in the world. That 70% of the top lawyers in the world reside and practice in the United States of America. Last year, there were 1.3 million lawyers in the United States, and that's double what it was just 20 years ago. Let me give you an example of how out of whack it is. The state of Delaware, which has 750,000 people, has more lawyers than the whole nation of Japan, which has 125 million people. It's probably not surprising, I ask you to guess, and you probably could come up with where the largest percentage of lawyers dwell in the United States of America. That would be Washington, D.C., who has 784 lawyers for every 10,000 people. 
Now think about that. 784 lawyers for every 10,000 people. To put that in perspective, the state of Indiana has 28 lawyers for every 10,000 people. Now I want you to understand that I'm not bashing lawyers. I'm not trying to put down lawyers. That was the career path that I felt like I was supposed to go on until God called me into the ministry. We have some wonderful lawyers that are here in the church. It's not lawyers' fault. It's a matter of supply and demand. The more people are willing to sue, the more people are looking to sue, the more people that are in getting involved in lawsuits require that we have more lawyers. There's a greater reason for it. And there, listen, there are many, many valid reasons for getting a lawyer. And most of them are very honorable and very important. But in the United States of America, civil litigation, one person suing another, has become the most common reason for hiring a lawyer. The most common reason for hiring a lawyer in America is so that you can take somebody else to court. It's been said that it used to be that if you had a problem with your neighbor, you gave them a piece of your mind. Now if you have a problem with your neighbor, you take them to court. You sue them. Last year in America alone, there were 125 million lawsuits filed, one against the other. The attorney Carl Lansing writes about this phenomenon in recent years. He said, in recent days, there is a new attitude that has developed towards lawsuits. He said, there is a symbiotic relationship of greed on the rise between public and the legal profession. Most people nowadays are no longer interested in getting fair compensation when they're wronged. They want to get rich. He said, 20 years ago, if someone was rear-ended in an accident, they might exclaim first, thank God I'm okay. Today... When someone is reared in an accident, their first response is, thank God I'm going to get rich. And it wouldn't be funny if it wasn't so true. If you think I'm exaggerating, remember the lady a couple of years ago who sued McDonald's because the coffee that she ordered that she spilled in her lap was too hot. She won a multi-million dollar lawsuit. You think that's crazy? In the state of New York the city of New York two years ago there was a man that wanted to commit suicide he jumped in front of a subway train he didn't die and so he turned around and sued the city of New York and won a multi-million dollar lawsuit because the train hit him even though he jumped in front of the train and it's not just out in the world it's not just out around us the lawsuit explosion has hit the church it's become a part of our reality in the church today. Just a couple of examples that I was real quick and easy to look up. Last year, there was a pastor that sued his denomination for age discrimination because he couldn't find a church willing to pay him the salary that he demanded he be paid. Last year, there was a pastor who sued his church and his deacon board claiming they were interfering with his performance of his duties. Two years ago, there was a church in Louisiana whose board took the pastor to court to have him removed, only to find out two days later that another lawsuit was filed by a different group of people in that church to remove that group who said they were the board away from being the board. Two years ago in Indiana, there was a 15-year-old boy whose family sued his church because of injuries that he had at a church picnic. He fell out of a tree. Even though in the, the lawsuit, in the time in court, it came out that his parents had sat there and warned him not to climb the tree. They told him it was dangerous. They watched him fall from the tree, and yet they sued the church and won a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Listen, you can't make this stuff up. Lawsuits are happening with an increasing frequency, both inside and outside the church. And sadly, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, gives a very clear warning that we've been ignoring. 
A very clear warning that would keep us out of many of these problems. So if you have a Bible, if you have your order of service, I want you to look at that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as we continue our study on the struggle is real. Now as you turn there, let me set the context for what's going on in Paul's day in Corinth. In the Roman world, court was a form of entertainment. Going to court, watching people in court, was like a sports spectacle. Matter of fact, archaeologists have discovered some of the largest buildings in ancient Rome were buildings that were used to house courtrooms. It was a place that you could go and watch entertainment. It was supposed to be fun to go and watch people air their dirty laundry in front of everybody else. And it was so bad that you, you, some of you have heard, served on a jury pool and had to go and serve jury duty to see whether or not you'd be selected. Sometimes they have 25, sometimes they have 50 people that come to a jury pool, depending on how many jurors they were going to need for how long. In ancient Rome, they had 250 to 300 people show up to serve on a jury pool. That means that almost everyone in your community knew your dirty laundry. And so the public spectacle caused them to want to sue each other. You thought, listen, I'm, I'm going to go and sue because it's going to be entertaining. They were airing their dirty laundry for the whole community. And the sad thing is, is there's evidence that many of the rich and powerful use the legal system to manipulate the system to take things from people who had less power and who had less things. Paul talks about that in our passage. Listen as I read. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Now, he's talking about judging the world. He's saying that one day those who are Christians will stand in judgment. They will rule. They will be in dominion over the rest of the world. That's in Revelation chapter 20. He says, do you not know that we will rule angels and judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to the law or goes to court against another. And this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your very brothers. Now, understand there's a couple of things I just want to pull out real quickly, and then I want to leave you with a couple of applications. First of all, it's very clear that Paul is saying here that when there's a disagreement or a conflict between Christians, the last place that they should go is to a court before a judge who is not a Christian. Christians shouldn't take their disagreements before an unbelieving civil judgment. He says, isn't there people in the church that can serve as mediators? He's talking about what Jesus brings up in Matthew 18. He says, even in the church, even the less educated, even the less qualified, even the less wise would be better to judge your disagreements and your conflicts than taking it before an ungodly place and an ungodly court. Why? Because of what it does to the reputation. As a family, you're supposed to handle your problems as a family, not air your dirty laundry for the whole town because it reflects not just on you, it reflects on who you represent, Jesus Christ, and on the body of Christ. He's saying, wouldn't it be better to settle this among Christians than to go out? Now, Paul uses sarcasm, but he also uses anger here. He seems to have two great problems. 
First of all, that the church in Corinth was ruining their testimony, ruining their integrity, and ruining their witness for the sake of civil lawsuits. He's saying that they are going outside of the family, and because of that it was corrupting their reputation. And then the second thing is, Paul is amazed that Christians would ever take another Christian to court. He's amazed. He can't believe that a Christian would take someone else in the body of Christ because what he's trying to say here is that the goal of the church is to show love to the world around us. And if you can't even show love and forgiveness to those in the body of Christ, how are you ever going to show it to those outside the body of Christ? That's why he says in verse 8, you've already been defeated. The moment you decided to sue another brother, sue another sister, then you automatically discounted the idea that you can love and forgive another believer. He's saying it's ruining the reputation. How are we ever going to show the world around us that we have the power of Jesus Christ to be changed, to not be like the world, if we're doing the very same thing in the world? How can we as a church stand out as a place where people can come and be redeemed and be reconciled and be loved and experience grace and experience forgiveness when just as many Christians are suing other Christians as people outside of the church body? Aren't we supposed to be different, Paul is saying? In reality, what he's doing is he's warning that the problems caused by these lawsuits far outweigh any justice you may attain from the results of these lawsuits. He's saying it's better to simply be wronged. It's better to be cheated than to take your Christian brother and sister to civil court. Now, he seems to suggest in verse 8 that somehow many of these Christians were doing it with the wrong motives. Their motives were not to find justice. Their motive was to get rich. They were taking advantage of their weaker brothers and sisters, and he's angry and he's disgusted that people in the church are taking advantage of other people in the church for their own financial gain. So what does that mean for us today? Why is this important? Why should we pay attention to it? Well, I think there's two very important truths that I want you to remember when you leave here. Two very important applications that I think we need to remember. First of all, this passage does not prohibit Christians from hiring a lawyer or going to court. I've heard many pastors who have stood in pulpits and used this passage to say, Christians should never go to court. Christians should never hire a lawyer. They should handle everything through some type of Christian mediation. That's not what he's saying here. He is specifically dealing with Christians and other Christians. There are many other reasons where a Christian might have to go to court. What are some of those reasons? Well, if someone who is not a believer files a suit against you, and they're suing you, there's nothing wrong with getting a lawyer and going to court to defend yourself. But if you've wronged someone, the first thing that you need to do is make sure your lawyer knows that you want to be fair to the person that you've wronged. And if the person you've wronged is not interested in fairness, if they're interested in revenge or trying to take advantage of you, then you need to let the lawyer handle it. You've done what you're supposed to do. Paul's not saying that as Christians we are supposed to just sit back and let the world beat up on us and sue us and take advantage of us. He's saying if there is a non-believer, if there is someone outside the church that sues you, get a defense. The second reason that you could hire a lawyer is if a non-believer's wronged you, there may be times when you should go and fight that wrong believer. Say an insurance company denies what you've paid for rightly. Say somebody in a business has, you've paid for something and they have not done what you paid them to do. It's okay for you to go to court and try to settle that. It's okay for you to, to not accept injustice or unfairness. 
But certainly a Christian should never file a lawsuit with the understanding to take advantage of a situation to gain something for themselves financially. The goal is always restoration and redemption, and it's to bring about what God calls justice. Now, the third reason, and this is probably the most accepted reason why a Christian should get a lawyer and should go to court, and that's the case where your civil rights are being infringed on. When your civil rights are being infringed on, you are not only allowed to go to court, you are encouraged to go to court. Because Christians are called to stand up against injustice. We are called to stand up against those things. When we see people in the world being mistreated, then if we don't stand up, we are going to be held accountable just as much as if we did. And so that doesn't give us an excuse to to ignore injustices. Now, it doesn't promise us that you'll win, but one tool the government gives individuals is the legal system to stand against injustice. Many of the cases that you hear about today where people's civil rights are being infringed on, it is part of our responsibility. Like the the Christian baker that's being sued for not baking a cake or the Christian organization that was sued because of the sign that they had at school or handing out Bibles in certain places. I'm not interested in arguing or debating those things, but when our individual rights, especially when it relates to religious freedom, or our rights are, are being taken away from us or being pushed against us, we have an obligation to fight those things. When there was segregation, when there were were problems with race relations, it was the responsibility of the church to speak up and go to court to find justice. You have an obligation to stand up. Because listen to me, if we don't fight for our religious liberty, I hope you understand in America where we are in 2019, that if we don't stand and if we don't fight for our liberties and our rights, there is a large group of people who will gladly take them away from us. So what Paul is saying here is not, don't go to court. What he's saying is, there are instances where you should go to court. Now let me remind you, if you do have to go to court of a couple of things. If you do have to sue somebody, first of all, a Christian in court should be no different than a Christian in church. When you go to court, you don't check your Christianity at the door. Everything that you do, if you are suing somebody, if you are in court, should reflect who you worship, who you live for, and that's Jesus Christ. I know so many Christians, and I have lawyer friends, they'll say, well, listen, when I go to court, all, all things are off. I, you know, I, I'm in court, I'm a lawyer first, not a Christian. That's wrong. You don't check your Christianity, just like you don't check it at the door when you're a teacher, or, or whatever your career is, a business person. You go and remember that everything you do reflects Jesus Christ. The second thing you need to remember is you're not going to court to seek revenge. The Bible says in Romans 12, 9, Do not take revenge, my friend, but make room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. Justice and revenge are not the same thing. If you go to court seeking revenge, you're going to come out of it worse spiritually than when you went in. And the third thing is that you need to always be willing to speak up. Always be willing to stand for truth, no matter if it's in court or out of court. Paul's not saying that we can't sue. Paul's not saying that we can't file a lawsuit. Paul's not saying that you can't have lawyers. So my lawyer friends, you know, hopefully you can take a breath. I'm telling people, they can hire you, okay? They can come to you if they have a need. But there are specific reasons. Why? Because that's what the Word of God says, to protect us and to help us. Now the second thing is a little more hard. 
little more difficult to swallow. Paul is clearly saying here that while it's not out of the realm of possibility that you can go to court against a non-believer, he is saying that a Christian should never take another Christian to court. A Christian should never sue another church member. That's hard to swallow. It's hard to deal with. But there's no way around it. I can't get around that that is a true commitment of what Paul is saying for the Christian in his life. Now, does that mean a Christian should let other Christians take advantage of them? Does that mean a Christian should uh, deal with injustices within the church? No. But what Paul is saying is there is a biblical response when somebody wrongs you. There's a biblical way to handle it instead of taking it to court. And he lays that out, Jesus lays that out in Matthew chapter 18. So I want you to listen to how we're supposed to handle it. When somebody in the church wrongs you, when another Christian treats you unjustly, when somebody cheats you, and, and listen, I've had to deal with this in all the years of my ministry. Christians going into business with other Christians and something happens and, and it, somebody takes advantage of one another and it ends up hurting the, the people and it ends up splitting the church. And then they end up going to court and it ruins the church's reputation. So why do you handle it? Well, listen to what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you will have gained a brother. You see, the whole purpose of trying to work out disagreements and unjust action and when you've been wronged is so that you can face reconciliation. Even in the courtroom scene, what God is looking for the church is for us to reconcile one another. Remember what he called us? You are called to be peacemakers. You are called to help people be reconciled in their relationship to God. Even in the court, even when somebody's wronged you. He says the first step that you need to take if somebody has wronged you is to go to that person and talk about it. He didn't say call all the other people in the church and try to get allies on your side or let everybody else know what they did to you so that they can take up your offense with you. He said don't tell anybody. The first step is if somebody hurts you, if somebody's taken advantage of you, if somebody's wronged you and they are a Christian, you go to them face to face and you let them know what happened. You let them know how you feel mistreated or what you feel like they have done is wrong to you. Jesus goes on, but if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He says if you go to him in person and they, it doesn't get worked out, they don't listen, they don't do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, then the second step is to go find two other believers or three other believers, and those three believers will go with you as witnesses to see that you have done everything you can to be loving and humble and seek justice. Take two or three people that can be a mediator. Take two or three people that are willing to go and and listen to both sides of the story and to make a decision based on what they hear through prayer and trusting the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons we don't see this in church anymore is it's tough to find people willing to do that. I remember in one of my churches, we had two people that were headed to court, and it was an ugly situation, and we asked them to go through Christian mediation. And so we began to ask some people in the church that we felt like in their peer group and people that they knew to be mediators spiritually to be able to handle this situation. Nobody wanted to do it. It's not my business. It is your business. You're a part of the family. You're a part of the body. And so the second step, if you go to them alone and you tell them what happened and you try to seek some type of fairness, 
and they tell you no and they reject you, then you go get two or three others and you go with them and you share your side and they share their side and you see how it comes out. And then Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to those people, then you take it to the church and the church becomes the mediator. That, that's Scripture. You don't take it to court. You don't hire a lawyer. You don't threaten a lawsuit. You take it to church. Take them to church instead of taking them to court. You go before the body and you say, here's the situation and here's the circumstance. We want the body to decide what is right. Now, people say, well, that, that's airing your dirty laundry. Better to air your dirty laundry in the family than outside the family, right? I mean, you, in your own family, you, you can talk about your family, right? But you don't want anybody else talking about your family, right? It's one of the first lessons I learned when I got married. And if you, if you hadn't learned this lesson, you hadn't been paying attention. My wife can talk about her parents all day long, how much they aggravate her, how much they make her mad, how much they disappoint her. But if I say anything about her parents, how much they aggravate me, disappoint me, or make me mad, I'm in trouble. Why? Because even though I'm a part of her family, that's her first family. And we don't like it. You don't like it. Somebody talks about your kids. You can say, my kids are the laziest kids in the world. They won't do anything. They are driving me crazy. You can complain all day long. And then somebody at work says, you got some lazy kids. Hey, who are you to talk about my kids? <laughs> right? Because you handle it within the family. And you have a responsibility within the family. And if there's two people that are quarreling, that are tearing apart the unity of the body, then it is the responsibility of the body to step up and work it out. So what happens if they still disagree? If the person who wrongs you still doesn't do what's right? Then Jesus says, if they refuse to listen to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. What does that mean? He says, turn them over to Christ and you walk away. Now this is where the water hits the wheel. What about you? What about you being wronged? What about you being cheated? What about you being hurt? What are you supposed to do if they go to one-on-one -on -one and they do two or three people and then it even goes before the church and they still don't do what is right? How are you supposed to respond? Is it okay, Paul, then to take them to court? Is it okay then to make a big deal? No. What does Paul say in verse 7 and 8? He said, sometimes the best thing you can do is just be okay being wronged or be okay being cheated. He says, choose to accept being wrong. And what he's saying is that the Lord will always honor your willingness to sacrifice your rights for the sake of God's kingdom. Not hardest thing in the world to live out. See, all of us in this room could say, I'd be willing to do that until you're the one wronged, until you're the one cheated. I remember sitting with a man, two men, that had been in business with another church member, and they decided to do mediation. They had both lost substantial amounts of money because of the dishonesty of the other church member. Went through mediation. Guy still refused to pay them. Still refused to admit it was a problem. Did all the things biblical. And then we sat with those two men who had been cheated. And one of them said, well, now what? And the other said, now what? is we recognize that it's just money. What does it gain if you gain the whole world yet lose your soul? He said, sometimes it's better to be wronged and be in God's will than to be right and be out of it. 
That's a tough pill to swallow. Tough thing for us to grasp, especially when you're on the receiving end. Is that easy? No. But sometimes God calls us to be willing to sacrifice our own interests for the sake of His kingdom, for the sake of the reputation of the body. We're called to follow what the truth of the Word of God is. Whether it's easy or hard, whether we like it or we don't. Why? Because God is trying to protect the body. God is trying to grow His church. And more importantly, God is trying to allow the church, the family, to be a beacon of God's love and a beacon of God's mercy to those outside the body. And here's the the, the takeaway. If we can't treat each other with love and fairness and forgiveness and grace and mercy, then how are we ever going to treat people outside the body that way? You and I can never forget that the world around us is watching. And if they see us suing one another, slandering each other, cheating each other, what is that going to say to them about the integrity of what we preach and what we say we believe? You see, you'd recognize that your behavior may not affect your salvation, but it may affect someone else's decision for salvation. Paul's saying some things are more important than you being right. Some things are more important than you getting your way. Some things are more important than everything working out the way you plan. Now, let me just close with this. I'm not going to pretend that this is an easy truth to swallow. Some of you have probably sued Christians before. Some of you have already been in church, and I can't help you with that. But what I can help you with is to understand what the Word of God says, that you and I are called to show love one to another, not sue each other. Now this may seem like some steps here and some rules, but it's deeper than that. You see, what Paul is trying to get them to understand, to follow Jesus, means that we have to be willing to give up some things. Matter of fact, we have to be willing to give up everything. Die to self. That means giving up our rights, giving up our comfort, giving up our consequences for the sake of other people. But that shouldn't be hard because the Bible says if we're willing to lose our life, then we'll find it. If we're willing to be last, then we'll be first. If we're willing to give it all away, then we will receive everything. You see, I think the truth of all this passage is this. When you or I are willing to be wronged, to be hurt, or even to be cheated for the sake of the gospel, it is in that moment we truly come to understand what it means to be a servant of Christ. It's in that moment when we are more like Jesus than ever before. The Bible tells us the only way to be great in His kingdom, the only way to experience true, full joy and peace is to be a servant. So what am I telling you? Is this, is this legalistically a truth? No. It's spiritually a truth that you and I have a responsibility to the body, to the family, to the reputation of Jesus Christ. Not just in the legal world, but how we live out everything that we do. And that starts in here, the body of Christ. Because if we can't do it in here, you'll never be able to do it out there. Let's pray.